And now another of our founders, Dr. Neumeyer. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be asked to say a few words at the passing of a very dear friend. Uh, everybody knows him to have been so well read. And, um, and in my experience, I've met many people who are extremely well read, but I don't know that anybody who reads serious books, not pulp or romances, but serious books, has, is more well read than he is. And on top of that, he remembers everything that he's read, which of course, as the students know here, it makes him a formidable opponent in uh, trivial pursuit. But the, <clears throat> the part, uh, the side of, of him that I was most struck by and am struck by is that he not only was so well read in so many things, but that he knew how to read. And he had the disciplines that the liberally educated man should have. Uh, which allows him to know what he's reading and to read things well. That is, uh, in the parts of animals, you students will remember, uh, Aristotle describes the generally educated man as a man who knows the modes of the different disciplines, the different sciences, and the kind of certitude you'd expect and the way you would, you would uh, demonstrate. And uh, so it's different in mathematics. You're going to find one kind of certitude, one kind of mode, and ethics and morals, you'll find something else. Um, and in rhetoric, you're going to find something else yet. Even the philosophy of nature, def defining by way of the four causes, is going to be different as well. And uh, I would say that, that Michael Payette was a master of these things. He was a fine example of what the liberally educated man is. But there's a side to him that makes him stand out in this regard. And that is that in that kind of murky area, called literature, um, people tend to take, take it as if everything called literature, because it has one name, uh, has one nature. And so they tend to read things by the habit they have. And I think maybe philosophers are maybe the, the greatest offenders because they're inclined to, to look for a philosopheme, that is some kind of philosophical statement that's contained in everything they read. The other extreme is you might think, well, everything, there's everything and everything, right? But, uh, but Michael knew different. He knew that, that uh, it, uh, it wasn't that way. You don't read a parable the same way you read a drama, and you don't read a drama the same way you read a satire, or a satire the way you read a piece of rhetoric or history the way you would read a fable. They're all different. But not too many people know that very well. Literary criticism, is a very difficult skill. And he had it in a remarkable degree. I would say he's kind of a master of that. Uh, as a consequence, he could read things well, he could judge them well, and he could enjoy them. Uh, we, can't, we, all, we all don't do that so well. And as a consequence, however, uh, he was a great conversationalist because he could speak so well about so many interesting things. And uh, I count myself fortunate to have spent uh, quite a bit of time in conversation with him, often in this very room here having lunch. Uh, now, his interests, however, in, as an intelligent man, a learned man, didn't just stop at the written word. He was also 
interested in other, in the fine arts. He was interested in music and art itself, painting, but he was also interested in architecture. And I do remember one day having a conversation which started with a discussion of the Maison Carré, which is in Nîmes, in Provence, in France. And it's a Roman temple built by Caesar Augustus uh, in honor of his two adopted sons whom he deified <laughs> and built this temple, which is an absolute gem of a temple. And those who, uh, who love architecture consider it really the quintessence of art, of architecture. Um, and we had a good long discussion of that, including the reason why Thomas Jefferson was so taken by it that he went back to Virginia and designed a, the Capitol building in Richmond uh, in the exact same proportions as the Maison Carré, which in French, of course, means the square building. The marvelous thing is that it's so simple and yet so per perfect. Nobody can see a way, a way to improve upon it. And it could have actually been the exemplar in Plato's world of forms uh, that every other building built is kind of a falling away, a participation of it, including Jefferson's Capitol State Building in Richmond. In fact, they ruined it by putting some wings on it. Um, but at uh, any rate, we worked our way through that conversation. The next thing we were in, we were talking about the Sixth Armies uh, at Normandy, the Allies and Axis armies, and the strategies that were being employed. And in there, he introduced me to a historian, a man named John Keegan, who's a war, a historian of war at the Sandhurst British School of War. <laughs> uh, excellent historian, and he, for Michael could pick out just the right books. But I think we finished that day um, talking about Bernard Darwin. Bernard Darwin was the grandson of Charles Darwin, the evolutionist, and he had been a solicitor and a barrister, but his real love was golf. He was quite an accomplished amateur golfer, played on the British Walker Cup team, and he became the writer. His passion was to write about golf. He was the writer for the Times of London for about 25 years. And uh, uh, he wrote on many different things, but, uh, and he never wrote on evolution, <laughs> if, my, if my memory serves me right, but he's a marvelous, a marvelous essayist. And um, he, um, he was regarded by a man named Sir John Squire. Uh, uh, he was judged by him to be one of the sixth greatest essayists since, since uh, Charles Lamb, right? Now, who the other five are, I don't know, but Michael would have known. <laughs> he also might have known, <laughs> known, known who, who Sir John Squire was, but as a matter of fact, uh, he, he was himself a writer, a playwright, a journalist, a literary critic, and uh, a contemporary, actually, of uh, Darwin, having been born in the latter part of the 19th century and then dying around 1960. So, um, so he would know Darwin and he would know, he would know literature and he would know criticism. Now, 
the, uh, Michael's interests are in sports, as mentioned here, um, but they're in the movies too. And he had this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of the movies. <laughs> and I have a daughter, Jane, who had him, I think, for four years, all four years, and they were dear friends. And they would have lunch together often, and uh, uh, she admired what he knew about the movie. She couldn't hold a candle to that, but she had a knack of actually reproducing scenes from great movies, doing it in character and style, accent, and all of these things, which delighted him thoroughly. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so they were fast friends, and she considers him to be, well, she said, Geez, I think he's the most learned, brightest man I've ever known. So, um, but it, he entertained the students, too, and he, I can tell you a couple stories. Is that all right if I go on and... Uh, tell a couple of stories that he told the students. Uh, <clears throat> one was why he doesn't, didn't have a telephone. <laughs> he, he lived alone without a phone, right? Um, and uh, he said it happened that when he, he first moved to Thousand Oaks and took his apartment, uh, he had a telephone service set up. But on the first night he was there, the phone rang and a voice said, may I speak with Jose? <laughs> and you know how Michael would speak in a very precise but complete way. He wouldn't leave out any elements that should be in there. And he, he answered him by saying, no, you may not speak with Jose. Jose does not live at this residence. <laughs> so he hung up. The next night about the same time, the call came again, the same voice said, uh, may I speak with Jose? And, no, he doesn't live at this residence. Finally, the third night, he called again. May I speak with Jose? And Michael said, Jose did not live here yesterday. <laughs> Jose does not live here today. And Jose will not be living here tomorrow. <laughs> with that, he slammed down the phone and cut off his phone service. He, he, <laughs> He considered the telephone, I think, an intolerable invasion of privacy. There should have been something in the Bill of Rights, you know, protecting citizens from, from the telephone. Uh, he, uh, he also told her one day that he, he thought his, his couch um, was a thief because he would come home with change in his pocket and uh, sit down on the couch for a spell and when he got up, he would find that the change was gone. <laughs> and this would happen repeatedly. And I think there were some other chairs in the apartment that, uh, that were his um, larcenist. And uh, so he was losing coinage and money all over the place. Um, he was never really famous for being a good housekeeper. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and. Uh, but that's an irony because when he was a student here, his uh, work-study job was actually to keep this building clean, <laughs> neat and clean, picking up everything. But um, his, um, his apartment just got out of hand at some point. And not being practiced at cleaning up, um, he recruited a couple of students to come and uh, tidy up the place. And for their compensation, he said, you can keep all the spare change that you find in the furniture. <laughs> so by the time he had finished, 
they had collected something like two hundred dollars <laughs> in po in pocket change. <laughs> So listen, I'll stop there. He was a very unique man, a wonderful man, a dear friend. We, we miss him already as a, as a, a valued colleague and as a, a brilliant tutor and as a conversationalist extraordinaire. Uh, but most of all, we miss him as a friend and a brother in Christ. And may God bless him and may he rest in peace. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you.